session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good afternoon. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes. Again, our studio number, 310-441-0555. The book of the week for this week is The Fear of Doing Nothing, Notes of a Young Therapist by Valerie Hazanoff. The Fear of Doing Nothing, Notes of a Young Therapist. And um, the very interesting title for me, therapy is a very um, fascinating experience both to be a patient but also a client but to be a therapist and one that at times is not very clear what's going on what's helping uh it's a very um vague world you can be in or at least hazy world and so i thought it was interesting that title the fear of doing nothing sometimes as a therapist they can you can feel like you're not doing anything but also sometimes being a therapist means not doing so much meaning that you might interfere with the process or the progress if you try to get too involved in finding that balance of, of listening and also sharing can be one that can be tough to figure out as well. So um, started it so far about 30 pages in, and I think he makes a good point. Uh, the name is Valerie, but I think he's Russian, so it's a he, um, about how he was going through his training, and sometimes the theories didn't quite match what he was seeing with clients that he was seeing. So we'll finish that book and share it with you next week. So tomorrow here in the United States is Thanksgiving. A very uh, happy Thanksgiving to everyone who is celebrating, and hope you enjoy it with your families. I'm looking forward to being with family as well. Um, starting even maybe tonight. But uh, one of the things that comes up, I usually talk about gratitude, and maybe I will later in the show, depending on how things go. But what I also wanted to talk about today is something that often happens when people gather and families gather, is they start talking about political issues and start to have political debates. And actually, my family, we like to have debates or discussions, and, and sometimes from the outside, it might look like we're having a nasty or heated argument, but really it's just that we're very passionate and we describe things and discuss things with some intensity. Uh, but what I wanted to talk about today was being aware of how we have these conversations, especially when it comes to political issues, and realizing that at times we're just going to waste our energy and damage our relationships rather than get anywhere productive or positive and being aware of what we're doing and if we can't avoid that. So usually when it comes to political or moral issues, as much as we'd like to think of ourselves as these rational thinkers who have come to our position after study and reflection and um, really thinking through all the issues and weighing both sides equally, really we're usually having an emotional reaction or something a little bit deeper than that rational thinking is what's making our decision. And then we're coming up for the reasons afterwards. So if you are pro-life or pro-choice, 
when it comes to abortion, it's very likely that that's more of an emotional reaction or feeling you have, or it's based on something else like maybe a religious belief or some other foundational belief, and then you are coming to that decision afterwards or the feeling comes first or when it comes to guns or when it comes to being liberal or conservative or what to do with homeless people or what to do with whatever immigrants, these types of things, it's more of an emotional reaction that then we come up with reasons afterwards. And so we have to first accept that about ourselves. And it could be a little bit humbling because we usually like to think we've come to our decisions because we're so rational and it's all about the way we've thought about things and it's the right thing to do after thinking about things. But if we can recognize that it does come from some level of emotional valuing or um, Jonathan Haidt, who has done a lot of research on morals, he talks about moral foundations and how this is what really causes us to um, feel different things about political issues. So he has five different moral foundations that he had described in his book, The Righteous Mind, harm versus care, fairness and reciprocity, in-group, out-group or loyalty, authority and respect, and then purity and sanctity. And so different people uh, value these differently or don't value some of them almost at all and might have a priority on one or the other. And that can affect how they feel about a lot of political issues. And in that book, The Righteous Mind, he gets into even uh, liberals and conservatives or in the United States, Republicans and Democrats and how their moral foundations are different and how that a lot of times determines what they are feeling about these different political issues, emphasis on feeling, but that's why they will just disagree no matter what till the end, because they're just going to already see it differently to begin with. If I think the most important thing is the lighting of the room and you think it's the temperature, we'll argue all day over what room is the right room because I'll choose the one that has better lighting, you'll choose the one that has better better temperature, and we'll insist that we're right, but it's that we're preferring different things. It's not that we're actually finding a true good or a true better. And so we have to accept that about what we think and we feel. Now, unfortunately, we're definitely very polarized at this time. I say that cautiously because it's very common for us to always think, oh, in the good old days, things were better. This is every generation does it. So in the good old days, we were good people. We got along. We did this. And then now this generation, the kids are for whatever way we're looking at it really bad. They're immoral. They have no values. They are uh, doing bad things. They're misguided. This has been true pretty much of every generation throughout history, that they've always been thinking the new generation isn't as good. So it's very easy to think, oh, we're more divided now and have this almost fake view of the past that everyone was so harmonized and agreeing. No, there was disagreements. But I do feel like it's become more intense uh, for several reasons, and definitely one of them is the internet and social media. Not only do people have different opinions, they're living in virtually two different realities because the news and the ideas you're being exposed to tend to confirm what you already think and believe. And so you just see the world in a certain way. So if you're pro-Trump, you're seeing all this news in your feed and from your friends and from uh, targeted ads and things that are very in favor of Trump and show information that makes you feel he's doing a great job. And if you're against him, you're going to get the opposite. So it just looks like even the facts are different. And this is actually a big issue that people are talking about is that we can't even agree on the facts anymore. Uh, and that is a big problem. And so this further makes you think that the other side 
isn't just thinking differently from you, but that they're stupid and wrong and immoral and all these other negative words, and it's not even worth talking to them. So in this way, the distance has also become greater because the worlds we are living in are really different worlds. When you hear about one thing and I hear about another thing, and we try to talk about what's happening in the world, we're going to have very different viewpoints about what even reality is, and that's going to make it difficult to have any kind of conversation. But I do ask for people to think about how we view the other side people who disagree from you, whatever that may be. And it's very easy to jump to the conclusion um, and more comforting to think, I'm the moral one, I am um, a good person, and these people are stupid, immoral, and don't know anything. But usually that's not the case, and we're actually doing that because it's more comforting to think we are right. Uh, even I know that for myself. If I'm seeing an article and I already know how I feel about an issue, I feel the anxiety or I feel the way I'm, I'm thinking about things or hoping to see things in that article pointing towards what I believe to be true. And this shows that it's more about a feeling than about actually thinking about things. Because if I'm just basing it on the evidence, then I'm going to want to hear all the evidence to find out if it's one way or the other. And I don't care which way it is as long as I find the truth. But when we have a feeling about it, then we don't want to be wrong or to change that view. So we're not actually getting the information we're trying to filter it to, to either confirm what we already know or to dismiss it if it disagrees. And that's usually what people do. If I send you an article on guns, if you are pro-gun and the article is pro-gun, you're like, yeah, see, more information proving that I'm right. This is exactly what I've been saying. I, I, I knew I was right. I know I'm right. This is the right thing. But if you're pro-gun and the article is anti-gun, what you're probably going to do is you're going to find reasons why the article is wrong. Well, look at this source. It's stupid. Look at the study they did. They didn't have enough participants or they had these issues with it. But you wouldn't have done those things if it agreed with you. You would have said, see, more evidence in my favor. And that's what we tend to do. When the evidence disagrees with us, we find a way to dismiss it, to say it was either wrong or biased or not good data. If it agrees with us, we say, see, I knew I was right, more evidence that I'm right. And so we have to have some of that humility and recognize that a lot of times it's more about how we feel about things than what we think about things. So it's less about the facts. That being said, when it comes time now and you're getting together with your family, of course, anytime, but especially now that sometimes you see family members you don't see often, or you might see them for a long period of time and issues might come up or people start discussing things, be aware of this. Don't go into the mindset, I have to convince them or I'm going to convince them and I'm going to change their mind. More than likely, in 99.9% .9 of the conversations, no one changes their mind. They just get actually stronger in what they're thinking, and they might actually just dislike each other more. You won't change each other's mind about the topic. You might change your mind about each other. Now you won't like each other as much, and that'll just interfere with your relationship really for no reason. You can have different thoughts and different feelings about political issues, but because you're trying to convince each other, you're more likely to get into an argument. I think it's important at the same time for us to talk because people's views can change, usually kind of slowly, or maybe if some really big event or something happens, it can lead to some sea change in how they view something. But usually it's going to be a smaller change over time. And I think it's important for us to have these conversations, but it has to come from this mindset that, okay, I'm not just trying to convince you. I want to share with you why I feel the way I feel, or even if you're not going to say it that way, why I think this way, or 
what's some of the evidence that's making me see it in this way. And I want to hear it from you as well. And that way we can both learn a little bit more, understand each other more. And maybe over time, of course, our views will change if we feel like they need to change. Uh, but let's not, let's make sure we're not making that our goal to prove who is right and who is wrong, who's smart and who's stupid, who is moral and who is immoral. Let's just have that starting point that we might try to understand each other more. I'll understand your viewpoint. You'll understand my viewpoint. And usually when we have these conversations, we'll see that the other side is not just crazy and stupid and immoral. And let's, we'll come to a better understanding and that's it. But let's almost make it a rule that we're not trying to convince each other or prove the other person wrong or stupid or immoral. We're just trying to understand each other more. And that way we can have conversations about these topics. Sometimes people say, don't discuss politics or religion at the dinner table. And there could be reason for that. And I think part of the reason is that they are sensitive topics, but also they're topics that people feel so strongly about and already believe so strongly that they're not going to change anyway. And the only thing that can happen really is an argument rather than getting to somewhere good. So hopefully for the holidays, if you are being uh, getting the chance to spend time with your family, keep this in mind. Even if you're, let's say, the one person who thinks differently than everyone else in your family, you don't have to prove to them that they're all stupid and wrong. If you really believe in what you believe in, that's fine. You can hold on to that for yourself. If they want to hear what you have to say, share it. But don't think it's your job to convince them all that they are wrong and bad. And realize that usually it doesn't get anywhere anyway other than just hurting them. And in general, when we try to push too hard on something, if anything, it makes people push back. So if you want people to understand your viewpoint more and you think by attacking them, they're going to listen to you more, it's usually not the case or just going to actually get stronger in their own belief and dismiss you more fully. Then if you actually listen to them, share your view, try to make it an open conversation and discussion, you're actually much more likely to get to a productive place and maybe they'll even hear what you're thinking and saying. And over time, that might have an effect, but don't put that pressure on yourself that I got to convince them today. You probably won't, and hopefully we can enjoy the holidays, enjoy spending time with our families and not focus so much on these arguments or getting into these arguments. We can share our thoughts respectfully without the desire to convince each other or prove each other wrong, and hopefully they won't get as ugly as they sometimes can get. All right, let's take our first commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back. Back studio number three one zero four four one zero five five five. So as I mentioned, tomorrow is Thanksgiving here in the United States, and it's a day, as the holiday implies, to give thanks. And so gratitude is a topic I usually bring up on this show that I do usually the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. So I wanted to talk a bit about gratitude again today, and what it means to be grateful, but genuinely grateful, because I think it's very easy because it's becoming trendy or cool to say you're grateful or to post it on your social media or talk about it in some way. And people will say they're very grateful, but really feeling that is something different than just saying it um, in a sentence or expressing that. So to begin with, the, the benefits of gratitude are very clear. Um, it reminds me a bit about mindfulness or meditation, where a lot of times people just thought this is something uh, people like to do, or it's new agey, or people are going to just uh, say it's good and helpful, but really doesn't have any benefits. And then now there's a lot of science backing up that indeed it is very helpful and has huge benefits to your brain and functioning and a whole host of uh, things. 
gratitude even more was in this way where people thought, okay, it sounds cute to be grateful or to write thank you cards or to, to be grateful for things in your day. And people might even make fun of it when someone comes off too grateful for everything they're experiencing in life. But a lot of research has shown that when we are more grateful, and especially if we can try to adapt an attitude of gratitude or that mindset, it can be very helpful for us in a lot of ways, both in our relationships and also in our just overall mental health. And so it's very clear that it can be helpful to do things like writing thank you letters to people for random reasons. So not necessarily uh, in response to a present or a gift or something they did, but just to say you're grateful for them in their friendship or their relationship or whatever it might be. Uh, it could be an email or a text, but always if it's a handwritten note, that's going to be more meaningful. So when someone writes you a handwritten note, it usually has more of an effect. It's more personal. You feel like you're more connected to them. Um, it could be being grateful to yourself. So people do things like gratitude journals where every you could do it every day, every day and every night. I used to do it more regularly, haven't done it as much. Um, but you write down things that you're grateful for each day. And these things, like anything I suggest or anyone suggests to you, they have to resonate for you. So for some people, something like that might sound really cheesy. Now, you can try it first and see uh, how it feels and if it really feels that cheesy. But um, if it does, then definitely don't do it. But for some people, it can feel very good. And also, many people I've brought this up to first thought it would be stupid or cheesy. But then once they did it, they actually enjoyed it. So I used to just put it into my phone every night. Uh, writing three things I was grateful for that day. You try to come up with unique things, and they don't have to be big things. Sometimes people think, well, nothing happened today. And that's the whole thing about being grateful. It's not just about, um, well, I was grateful I got a promotion, or I was grateful I got married today, or I was grateful some huge thing happened. Of course, you might be grateful for those things, but it's realizing there's so much more that you take for granted or you don't recognize in your own life, um, partially because of our mindset and also partially because we are mindlessly going through the day and so when you become more mindful sometimes you notice this beautiful tree that's on your root home every day that happened to me recently someone was visiting and they noticed this tree that was close to my house and I never even noticed it before until they pointed it out and how beautiful it was and then now I notice it more so uh, it's not about just being grateful for huge things. Of course, we will be grateful for those. But when we have this attitude of gratitude and this mindset, it's more about recognizing the good in our everyday life. Or um, a lot of times we don't realize the things we take for granted until we lose it. You don't know what you got till it's gone. If you're talking about your health, until you're unhealthy in some way, sometimes more serious, sometimes even less, like you get a stuffy nose and you're like, gosh, I take breathing for granted or breathing clearly for granted now that it's gone, I realize how much of a blessing it is to just be able to to take a nice deep breath comfortably. Um, of course, when we lose loved ones, even more we realize how much we might be taking them for granted or not realizing that it, it is a blessing to have them each day. And so that's the mindset of uh, gratitude isn't just about seeing the huge big things, but it's recognizing the small. Uh, the things that you might take for granted every day are not just small, but having people and realizing that you are lucky to have them. You're not guaranteed to have another day. You're not guaranteed to have that person in your life. 
Now, as I was mentioning before about doing the exercises, it has to be genuine to you. And so this is where I was saying before, I think sometimes people just because they hear it's good to be grateful or they want to look grateful in front of other people, they say things, but they don't really mean it. Oh, I was so grateful for this cloud I saw today because it was so glorious. And they post a picture and, you know, they try to get attention for it. As always, our intention is what matters. So if you're trying to come off grateful because you want people to think of you that way, that's very different than genuinely being grateful because you think it's good and the right thing to do. Um, so keep that in mind as well. But when you're being grateful about things in your life, you have to feel it. And so sometimes people who are depressed, they actually can get the most benefit from practicing gratitude. And it can be interesting because when you bring it up to someone who's depressed, they sometimes think, they might even think, are you kidding? You want me to be grateful? I've had you know so many bad things happen to me. What do I have to be grateful about? Um, and that's where it can actually help them to recognize there are still things that they could appreciate or actually are grateful that they have. And you can't tell someone to be grateful. This is something people will often do. Say, oh, what are you complaining about? You have this, this, and this. It has to be something that the person themselves feels. So you can ask someone to look for those things in their life or to take notice of them, but you can't tell people you should be grateful for this or you're ungrateful because you don't appreciate this, that, or the other. And I'll get into complaining to something I touched on Monday's show as well. Uh, but someone has to feel that themselves. But what they recognize is just the act of trying to notice things you're grateful for can help make you more aware of the things in your life. So I remember that experience when I would do the gratitude journals uh, every night is that throughout the day, I would be paying more attention to things to write down. Not that it was an assignment that I had to get done, but because I knew I was doing this, it was on my mind. And so I'd be focused on uh, what I would, you know, noticing like, oh, you know, that conversation I just had with a friend or I saw um, a baby smile while waiting for my coffee. That was very sweet. And that was something I was grateful for or cheered up my day. And those things made me more focused on that. And so it's a crude analogy because our brain is not actually a muscle, but we know that the the more you use certain parts of your brain, so in a way, the more you think about certain things or think in a certain way, the more those things come to you naturally. So something we talk about in social media is the comparison culture. And you go on social media and you're scrolling through your phone. And so you're seeing other people and you're constantly comparing yourself to other people, whether they're worse than you, better than you on different dimensions. And it makes it more likely that you have this mindset and thoughts of comparisons come to you more easily and more naturally. And this is negative. And this is actually why when it comes to gratitude, uh, what can be a problem is sometimes people think that, okay, if I want to be grateful, I should think about people who have less than me. That's going to make me feel grateful. So think about all the people who don't have this and don't have that, and that's going to make me feel better. Um, in a way, it can in the moment, but unfortunately what it does is it reinforces this comparison mindset. So if you keep thinking, oh, this people, you know, this guy or that girl or these people don't have this thing I have, I'm so grateful, I'm so lucky, in that moment it'll make you feel good possibly, although I think it's not the best way to do it anyway. But on top of that, the problem is that now it's going to make you think more about comparing to other people. And inevitably you'll find something that you have less than other people. So if you're happy that let's say you are financially more okay than 
some poor people or poor person you're thinking about, if you have this mindset, then you're going to eventually come upon or think about someone who has more than you, and now you're going to feel less, and you won't appreciate it or won't feel good. So really what you want to do is rather than focusing on comparison, focusing on what you're grateful to have for you. It might be different than someone else, or it might be more or less, and that's not the focus. It's more about, I'm grateful I have this. I am grateful for this experience, for this person, for this relationship, whatever it might be. But we want to make sure we don't focus on uh, comparing ourselves to other people. So the brain does have this feel or this um, dynamic like a muscle that the more you work certain things, the more those parts of your brain fire. So, of course, we don't want to deny things, but if we just focus on negative things, it's more easy for negative things to come to our mind. And when someone is actually depressed, they're in a way in a more negative mindset. And so more negative things come to their mind, unfortunately, which further can reinforce the depression, which is unfortunate. Um, and this is why actually becoming grat grateful or having gratitude can be helpful to them. So we want to build, so to speak, I say that because it's not really true, our gratitude muscle or muscles in the brain, because then we'll have more of that type of mindset. Now, again, we can't do this in a fake way. So don't fake it to tell people you're grateful. And the other aspect I, I mentioned before that I wanted to conclude this segment is about being able to complain and how being grateful and complaining are not mutually exclusive, or it doesn't mean you can only do one, or if you are grateful, you're never allowed to complain, or you can never complain. This doesn't make sense. You can be very grateful for a lot of things, but something bothers you, and you might get upset about it. Someone picks you up from the airport, so nice of them, and I think I mentioned this analogy before, but if it's they pick you up and the music is so loud, your ears hurt, you might say, my ears are hurting. And they can't say, oh, I picked you up from the airport. Why aren't you grateful? You shouldn't complain about anything. It's very nice they picked you up from the airport, but if your ears hurt, you're allowed to say that too. And so the same is true in our relationships. People often feel like, well, I shouldn't complain or I shouldn't say I don't like something because this person has done so much for me. And so if I'm saying something negative, that means I'm being ungrateful. When it's not true, you can do both. You can be very grateful for what they've done, uh, but still share things that have upset you or hurt you. We would, You should want that. You would want someone to tell you those things too. Not to say, there's a difference between saying, I appreciate you, I, I appreciate your friendship or your relationship or whatever it might be, or if you're a mother, father, whoever the dynamic or the relationship is. Um, there, here are also some things that have hurt me. That's different than saying you're the worst mom or dad or friend because of this. Then you're being, you're throwing everything away. You're going to the all bad. That's also not healthy or genuine or real. Uh, and that's not going to be healthy or helpful. But you can have both. And every relationship, every experience can have both. You're going to have both of those things. And being aware of those things that bothered us or hurt us, it's not to focus on them, but it's actually to make things better. If you share with someone things they've done that have bothered you or hurt you, that can actually help you to feel better in the long run and to make that relationship better. And so expressing the gratitude, but also the things that you're not feeling so good about is very important. Now, we generally don't like uh, to talk about things that make us feel negative or we try to avoid those things. So people will tell you to put those things away. And so when it comes to expressing gratitude or being happy, everyone is all go for that and it's easy. But when it comes to the more difficult conversations, those are the ones we tend to avoid. Don't bring up the negative. Don't say anything bad. People don't want to hear anything bad. And I get that they don't feel as good, 
but we need to have both and we need to have the opportunity to share both. We should definitely express the gratefulness and the gratitude that we have and the appreciation, but we should also be allowed to share the things we don't like. We want to make sure we express that to the people around us. We also give the space for the people around us to express those things to us. You can tell me how I've hurt you. You can express if I've hurt your feelings or upset you, or there's something in our relationship that you don't like. There has to be space for both. So tomorrow is Thanksgiving and a day to give thanks and definitely to focus on that and to experience and express gratitude is a wonderful thing. But we should also be aware that to express something that has hurt our feelings or bothered us doesn't mean we're being ungrateful or bad. You could have both. You can be very grateful, but also express pains, upsets, hurts that you have. You can be grateful for your physical body and everything that's okay, but then if you have some kind of pain or issue, you're allowed to address that and recognize that, and that's not something bad or something that you should be uh, made to feel bad about. So I hope everyone enjoys their Thanksgiving and does express their gratitude to one another. Even if someone is not around, you can express that gratitude. It will help you, and also when it comes to your relationships, be sure that you're allowed to express the things you're not happy about as well. All right, we've reached another commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So as I mentioned, tomorrow here is Thanksgiving. And with Thanksgiving here in the United States comes another day that for many people might be more important than Thanksgiving, unfortunately. Uh, it's actually kind of a dark day and actually that's why it has the word black in it to me black friday is this friday and so people are very excited to buy things and get great deals on things and it's funny because it's called black friday but a lot of the sales start now on thursday so it's like people don't even spend the time with their family they're already going and lining up at stores and and uh, waiting to get some products. So it's, I think soon it's just going to become all of November. Soon will be just Black November and uh, buy stuff and get stuff. And so is it bad to buy things? Of course not. I'm not going to sit here and have a, uh, some kind of rant about how no one should ever buy anything. Um, of course, I enjoy buying things too. But there is, like anything, limits and moderation that we have to think about. And especially today, of course, this relates to anyone, including adults, but with parents and their kids, I thought it'd be good to talk about this topic because parents have this issue a lot with their kids of what to buy them, how much to buy them, uh, the kids demanding things and telling them all the other kids have this or being used to having certain things. And it's usually a challenge and struggle that many kids have. Even I know a story of when I was like two years old and um, I wanted to get this expensive maybe i was three this watch that was expensive from what what used to be called thrifty now it's rite aid and it was too expensive and because i didn't get it i started to throw a tantrum in the store and i've heard the story many times before um but so it puts parents in tough positions at times when kids want certain things and and we don't want to give them those things or we don't know should we am i depriving them am i spoiling them um, what's the right thing to do and like most of these types of issues when it comes to anything and parenting, there isn't some black and white thing of always buy it or never buy it. Although actually some parents, unfortunately, do have the mindset of always buy it. If my kid wants something, I never want to tell them 
no, I never want to deprive them. Sometimes it gives that feeling, which sometimes could be coming from our own childhood where we didn't get things that we wanted. So I don't want my child to ever have that feeling of not getting what he or she wanted because I remember what that felt like, whether your family was poorer than you are now or whether your family was more strict than you know you liked or want to be now. Sometimes we go to that other extreme and that's not healthy and not good for our kid. It's just like if uh, they want to play video games and you never had video games. You don't say you can play video games till four in the morning every night, no matter what, or, you know, it's food or whatever the thing is. We do have to be aware that moderation, there is something about that finding the balance. So it's never going to be an all or nothing thing. Of course, we shouldn't deprive our kids either and say we're never going to buy them something or they shouldn't have anything. Um, but we want to be thinking about that balance. And like a lot of things, it's not something that one statement or one action is going to change things it's about how you deal with things to begin with and so first of all about being spoiled um, one thing people worry about is spoiling their kids in lots of ways uh, buying them too many things but also even in loving our kids people can have this fear if I, you hug them too much or love them too much they're they're going to become spoiled and i don't think that genuine love really loving your kids is ever going to spoil them giving them what they need emphasis on need when it comes especially to love if they need support if they need a physical hug if they need someone to talk to those things they're going to need and they're going to need your time and your attention as um was scott peck i forgot the name of the author of the road less traveled m scott peck i think he says that love is time and attention and to me, that makes a lot of sense because if you just buy your kids things thinking you love them so much, and that's how I love my kids is making money and buying them things, that's one way, but they won't really feel that love until you give them your time and your attention. Kids will feel that. Babies will feel that when you give them their your genuine time. And I like both of those together because some people will just be with their kids now, but they're on their phones or doing their own thing. And so I spent four hours with my child. But none of it was really engaged or very few of those uh, minutes and hours was spent engaged with the child. So it's the time and the attention together. So when it comes to love, you can give that to them freely. Make them feel that love and care by giving them time and attention. But when it comes to giving them things, whatever those things are, we have to realize that by limiting what we give them, it's not out of punishing or deprivation. It's out of love. It's just like if you're giving them food, if you give them too much food, it's not good for them. If they're playing video games or iPad from a young age, too much of it is bad for them. You're not putting a limit because you want to hurt or deprive them. It's for their benefit. It's just like they need enough time to sleep, so you don't want them to watch TV till 4 in the morning. So if you put a limit on their TV watching, it's not from deprivation or punishment it's out of love and so we have to recognize this that when we actually love someone even when we love ourselves we set limits because we know that if we just let the now feeling take over or whatever feels good in the moment we'll do things that aren't good for our long-term benefit in taking care of ourselves. if you're a student if you say because i love myself i should do whatever feels good in the moment well then you won't study you'll go do other things have fun uh, waste time, go on Netflix, and you'll never study. But you recognize that to love myself, or if I love myself, I'm going to put a limit. I'm going to stop this more fun thing in the moment or what feels better in the moment and do something else. So as a parent, we have to be aware of this mindset to begin with. 
stopping your child from doing too much of something is an act of love. It's not punishing. It's not hurting. Even if in the moment your child seems to not like it, because that's how it always is. When we stop something we like, when we stop something we enjoy in the moment, it doesn't feel good. And so with that, we also want to be aware that it doesn't feel good and communicating about it is what we want to do with them, meaning setting the boundaries with them. Okay, how much TV should we watch during the week? And as I've always suggested, have these conversations with your kids. It doesn't mean they get to set the rule completely, but also you're not going to set it completely without even discussing it with them. So yeah, your child might say, I want to watch five hours of TV a day. And you're like, okay, that's too much. Let's let's think about how much time you need for homework and sleep and other things, and let's set some limits. And so you set those limits with them so that it's a little bit easier. Okay, they know it's one hour. We talk about it. They agreed. It still might be a challenge at times. So I'm not saying if you come up with these boundaries, everything is going to be smooth. Uh, actually, you're going to get tested, and it's important that when you get tested, you are consistent with them. Meaning that when you say one hour TV, they agree to one hour TV, everyone's on board. And then it's been one hour and they say, oh, no, come on, one more show. I just want to watch a little bit more. I want to do this. You have to lovingly let them know, you know, we made this boundary. We made this rule for a reason. And I know you want to keep watching. I know it's fun. Um, but, you know, we made that one limit. So let's stick with that rule. You'll get to watch again tomorrow. Um, and even over time, you guys can discuss the rule and then you make it an hour and a half if it makes sense or whatever it might be. The rules can change. They're not something set in stone. It's just like bedtime for me. It's not that eight is better than 730 or 830. But as long as you're all on the same page, that's the important part that the kid feels like they had a say in it, that they got to be part of the process. That's what is even more important than actually the exact time. There isn't some time coming down from the heavens that is the perfect bedtime but what's most important is that everyone is on the same page so we set those boundaries with them for love of our children because we love them not to take something away and so for many parents they have to accept this sometimes saying no to my child or disappointing them even in the moment is part of being a loving parent because i love them yes they enjoy doing this they're asleep and it's time to get up for school. They like to sleep more. It feels good to keep sleeping, but we have to wake them up and get to school. That's just how things are. And we understand they might not like it. We understand it doesn't feel good, but we're going to have to do that anyway. So the first thing to recognize is boundaries are in a loving way. Yes, they should be firm, but flexible, which sounds like it's a contradiction. But yes, you have to be firm with it, but not so firm that you're inflexible. Something extreme happens. Uh, grandma comes to town all of a sudden and they want to watch a movie with her. You say, no, we said, you know, your TV allotment is done for the day. Maybe you make that exception at times. Again, there's no black and white uh, about it. When is it time to be flexible? When is it time to be firm? That's something you're going to have to figure out with yourself and your family, but try to keep that in mind that if you're always breaking the rule, then it's no longer a rule. And so a lot of times parents, it's almost funny, they'll say, no, 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 I made a rule with him. I said 10 p.m., that's it. You can't watch TV after 10 p.m., so I do make rules. And then you ask them what happened, and they say, well, yeah, I told him to stop, and he didn't, so he watched TV till like 11, 11.30 every night. So a rule is only a rule if we actually follow it. And again, in the story I just shared, if you say it in that way, it's less likely to be followed than if you actually let your child be 
part of making the rule with you. So we want to set those boundaries in all the things that we do. And another thing when it comes to these things is that being aware that when we create habits, they're much harder to break once it's been created. Um, a very simple, extreme example of this is something like drugs. If you start uh, smoking uh, crack cocaine, once you start doing it, it's hard to then make it less or stop it. If you never start to begin with, it's a lot easier not to get there. Now, that's more extreme, but even in general, when it comes to things that you're doing with your kids, be aware of that. If you start introducing junk food and fast food to them, they're much more likely to prefer those foods to healthier foods once it's been introduced to their palate and their diet and what they're used to. If you have your baby playing these very intense games or watching intense videos with lots of action and moving around and sounds that might be overstimulating and actually harmful to them, it's now going to be harder to introduce them or want them to do something more slow-paced or engaging. They're going to want that level of excitement and that level of uh, constant stimulation, which actually isn't good for them. So once you introduce that, it's hard to take that back. And so similarly, when it comes even to buying things, if your child feels like constantly they're going to always get new toys, new things, and don't really see the value of having those things, they're just going to get used to buying new things. Anytime a new toy comes out that I want, I get it as soon as I want it. Anytime um, I have five of these dolls, if I want the sixth one, it doesn't matter. I get that sixth one even if I don't use the other five. So we, in a way, introduce to our kids and we create an internal limit or what they're used to, and we have to think proactively about this. If we start introducing junk food or junk entertainment to them from a young age, that's going to affect the way that they are going to want things in the future. It's harder to give a kid an apple when they've been exposed to french fries and hamburgers in a fast food place. They're going to prefer that over the apple. If they've only had apples and fruits and healthy foods, they're going to prefer those foods and actually desire those foods. So we help create the desires and wants of our child. And again, it goes back to the mindset that de deprivation is not what we're doing. We're not depriving them by setting limits that are going to protect them in the long term. We're actually trying to protect them because we know that these things can become things that they get too hooked on. And so as a, also an ending statement in this segment and after the break, I'll talk more specifically about consumerism and buying things when it comes to our kids and how it relates to us. Um, I'm not saying never have these things. So it's not that I I think you should never let your kids watch TV or have junk food, but just be aware of the habits that you're creating for your child. They don't have a choice. If you give them um, some kind of sweet food or salty food or delicious food, they're going to want more of it. It's up to you to be aware of the boundaries or about the consequences of when they get hooked on these things. So after the break, I'll continue talking about this topic, especially related to Black Friday, which is coming this Friday of buying your kids things and even yourself as a consumer. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dulakwi. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So before the break, I was talking about... Um, leading up to this segment about Black Friday and about with your kids, being aware that setting limits does not mean you don't love them or that you're depriving them or setting boundaries doesn't mean that you don't love them. Actually, if you don't set any boundaries, that's a lack of love. You're not loving them if you don't set any limits in any way. And so some parents, uh, as I was mentioning before, due to their own experience as a child, 
feeling like they were deprived, feeling like they didn't get what they wanted. Unfortunately, in a way, take that out on their kids by going to the other extreme and saying, I'm never going to make you feel like you don't get what you want or you're always going to get what you want when you want it in any way or whatever it is and there's going to be no boundaries or limits and think that's a form of love when in fact it is not you're going to be hurting your child if you don't give them any boundaries any limits those are the things that will help them grow and also help protect them because as i mentioned before the break there are some things that if we don't control for our kids they won't be able to control if you expose them to certain types of entertainment and food and lifestyle, they'll get used to that and it'll be so hard to change it. So a lot of parents, when it comes to things like the phone, like, I don't know how to get this phone away from my kid. He's addicted or she's addicted to it. Well, we have to realize you helped create that addiction. The child had no choice in a way. When they're little and you give them something and it's fun, they're going to get hooked to that thing. It is in some way like a drug and sometimes people debate things like phones are we addicted to them is it different than addiction whether or not it technically meets some definition of addiction it definitely does get to the point where people feel like they can't do without it or they get irritated without it or they get used to a certain amount of using it to the point where it's hard to change that and so we have to be aware of what we're creating with our kids or if it's with junk food being aware how much we introduce that to them so again limits are not a lack of love limits and boundaries actually can be love when they're done in a wise way with the intention of helping our children not with the intention of punishing or hurting them and so what i also brought up is a reminder of how important it is for us to think about our own childhood and understand it better because that's going to greatly affect the way we parent our own kids things we experience sometimes we do the same thing so let's say you had an abusive home, you might become an abusive parent. That's very common. Um, but then sometimes the opposite happens. The things you experience, you'll react and do the opposite because you have something unresolved in you. So you see this deprived child every time you see your child because you think of yourself as a child who felt very deprived. And so now when you see them, you keep imagining that feeling you had. You're, you're never going to feel this way even though they're not worried about feeling that way, but you're putting that onto them, you're projecting that. So it's so important as a parent to be mindful of what you've experienced and understand that because consciously or unconsciously, it's somehow going to play out with your own kids. And the more you're aware of it and the more you work through it, the less it can have a negative impact on how you parent and on your children. Now, when it comes to buying things in consumerism, this next part parents might not like, but you also have to be aware as a parent how you buy things and view things. If you're constantly buying things and making those things very important in life, what you have, your children are going to pick up on that. So if you want to show that things are not that important, that the most important things in life are relationships and doing good things and being a good person, you have to live that life. Your kids are going to see that. If you are constantly focused on what you're buying and who has what and who has the nicest this and the nicest that and comparing those things, your child is going to recognize those things as important. So parents will often say, I tell my kids this doesn't matter or this does matter. And what you say has some impact. I'm not going to say it doesn't matter at all. But what you do and how you act is going to be much bigger than some words you say. So parents will tell their kids oh i told them you know money is not important and things are not important they shouldn't care about things 
but then in their whole life they're focusing on what they have and how much money they have and what they're buying and what they're going to get and what they're getting next and so your kids will see that 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 is the more important thing so parents themselves have to be aware of their own buying habits their own relationship to buying things and to material things because that's going to be affecting how your kids see these things as well if you make it seem like those are the things that make you happy those are the things that make you feel good your child will have that same mindset even if you tell them things don't matter or uh, you know oh there's kids in some other country who don't have toys so you shouldn't care about what you have well there's adults in your own city who don't have the things you have so if that's your reason for that they shouldn't be upset then you shouldn't care if someone steals almost all of your stuff because there's someone that has less than you so that argument doesn't go very far for me to tell them uh, just argue about it in that way um, you can show them what's more important and i think that's the better route than just telling them they're bad for wanting something not realizing that you've also contributed to how they want and how they view certain things so we have to look at our own buying habits our own consuming and what we do and realize that's going to affect our kids as well now when it comes to what they buy it, again it's about a balance for me it's of course not that we don't buy them anything but that we don't have to buy them everything all the time um, sometimes even parents they think they're showing their love by how much they spend on their kids and so i think babies can look very cute and cute stylish clothes and sometimes they'll put them in you know burberry clothes and gucci shoes and these things and we think we're loving them more by getting them the more expensive clothes now i'm not saying it's bad to do those things but being aware that the money you spend especially for a baby and kids they don't care and the joke uh, you hear from a lot of parents which can have a lot of truth about it is that you get a baby or a young child a gift and they're more excited about the wrapping paper and the the peanuts inside the thing that we're keeping the product safe than the actual product itself and so we're so focused on spending this money but kids will show you that money doesn't really buy their happiness and they don't really care about expensive things they want things that they like and things that engage them and things that they enjoy spending money is more about you feeling good than about them so people also will spend so much money on the baby's first birthday when the baby won't even remember anything about that and if anything you sometimes go to these people's houses and the kids like why are all these people in my house or you get that feeling the baby's like well, i don't want all these people here so clearly it's about the parents and making a certain impression uh, to other people then it is about making the child happy or it's about the kid uh, maybe we're thinking well we want to show them when they're older that we threw this birthday party for them but for me it doesn't really make sense to spend all this money and we have to recognize we're not doing it for our kid even if we tell ourselves i'm spending all this money on our child it's about us and about how we think we're going to look to other people and so that's something that also happens with parents not only are the kids comparing themselves to other kids oh you know everyone in my school has a phone everyone in my school has the newest this or that but parents are noticing that oh does my kid not have the best this or that do other kids have nicer clothes or shoes or phones than my child and as much as we might think we don't care about that we care because of how it looks on us maybe it looks how much money we have and that's going to make us feel good so everyone thinks oh my son or my daughter has the nicest things too or that we might look like bad parents because other parents are buying their kids something that we're not buying for our kids and so we feel bad about that and we think we have to prove to them 
uh, that we are just as providing as these other parents, uh, but realizing that, again, if you don't buy them something, if you're setting that limit in what you buy for them, it's not to deprive them. It could be coming from a place of love that you need to set these limits. Now, when we look at kids being spoiled, there's a few things that I think could be going on. As I was saying before, if we introduce too much of something to them or get them used to certain things, they'll get used to that. So if they're used to buying 10 toys every time they go to the store, they're going to expect 10 toys every time they go to the store. You create an expectation and you create um, things that they get used to, things that they're accustomed to. So we have to be aware of that. But also when we look at being spoiled, oftentimes what we recognize is that a child is filling one type of need or desire over the top because something else is missing. If a child is not getting enough attention or time from you or not feeling loved in some way, they're going to want you to buy more things for them or that can be a way to make them feel good. So if a child uh, doesn't get enough of one thing, they'll get more of another. It's like if you didn't have enough food and you were very, very hungry, you might drink more maybe not just alcohol, but even just water. You might fill yourself with water. And so if you look at that person drinking tons and tons of water, you might think, oh, look how spoiled they are, how greedy they are. But really, it's not a greed. It's trying to fill up something that's missing with something else. So something you have access to, you're overdoing it because something you actually need, you don't have. And so a lot of times kids are not feeling good. They're not feeling loved in other ways that they need you. And so they're trying to fill that hole up with something else, with things. And you might f actually be playing along with it because let's say you're uh, a father or a mother who's not spending enough time with your kids. Well, you're like, I feel, you might feel guilty about that. And so you're trying to make up for it by giving them more of something else or too much of this other stuff. So I'm going to overdo it with the stuff with buying them things because I'm not giving them enough of these other things that I need to do as a parent, give them love, give them attention that they truly deserve. So be aware of that too. So as with most things I'm going to talk about on any topic, moderation is the key. And so focusing on what you get for your kids, they don't always need to have the newest something or buy something. And what's important is to recognize and give them value of things. So show them that something is important, that when you have something, just because it's getting a little bit old doesn't mean it's useless now. And again, this is about how you treat things as well, that you don't have to just get rid of something because it's a little bit old or have so many of the same thing, even if you don't use them, hoard up on things. You don't want to give them the feeling of deprivation, that they can't have things that they need and they want, but be mindful of how much they have of certain things. And I think it can be important, not in a way to make them feel guilty, not in a way to make them feel bad, but I was talking about how parents will sometimes say, well, other kids don't have this or they don't have that. Not in a way to make them feel guilty about in general as soon as they want something, but it is important to have them be aware of others who don't have. Not to say it's your responsibility every time, but how can we help others? And so this goes back to how it's not just about one statement or conversation, but a mindset. If you actually do live your life with them, and you make helping others something important, they will feel that. If we donate to charities, if we sometimes give our clothes or our toys to other kids so that they can play with them, if we show them a mindset that giving is important, making sure others are taken care of is important, 
that can also make them value what they have more. So it's not to make them pity or feel sorry for other people and say, look, these kids have nothing, you have something, don't complain. But it's to shift their mindset to recognize that others deserve help, everyone deserves. How much they enjoy having their toys, that's good. Other kids deserve to have that feeling too if a child doesn't have that feeling. So it's not about having 10 toys, nine of which they can't play with at any given time, but about having some, something and that all kids should have those things. So I hope that parents keep this mindset in their own life, but be aware with your children that that's the way they will learn. If it's just you bring up other people in a moment where you don't want to buy them something, oh, stop complaining, you have four of those and some kids have nothing, that's not going to be the right way rather than actually showing them the importance of thinking of others, the importance of being aware of what they can do to help people, what they can do to make sure others are okay that there is enough in the world for them to be okay and for others to be okay. They can have what they want and what they need and still be aware that some that don't have what they want or need can be helped by them or something can be done about it. So as Black Friday approaches and everyone's thinking about what to get and what deals to get and how much they want this or that, be aware of the messages you send your kids and the way you make them think about what does it mean to have something, what does it mean to own something, and what are the more important things in life? And Black Friday will be one day of the year where you can show that, but throughout the year showing them what are the things that we value as a family and that we want our kids to value, what are the important things in life, and what are the things that are not so important? And also, what are the things to keep in mind about helping others and making sure they're okay as well, that I can be okay and try to make sure that others are okay and happy also. All right, we've reached another commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Uh, hello. Yes, hi. Thanks for calling. Uh, thank you. Thank you for the time. Sure. Go ahead. Uh, I have a daughter. She is 14 years old, and she was born in Sweden. Uh, from the beginning, she was late in everything. She mm-hmm. in sitting, walk, uh, and crawling, and going everything. And uh, then uh, she received a diagnosis of mentally retardation when she was seven. Uh, uh, but it was very light. She had IQ around 70. Uh, then uh, after she had help all the time in kindergarten and at uh, time. And then um, I felt that she had another problem. She, I felt that it was not enough for me to know that uh, it's just low IQ. And I, um, I didn't know what it was. And I guess it was like ADD or something like this. And I um, insisted to uh, get a kind of, uh, again, check her. Uh, and the next time, when she was uh, uh, eight years, uh, eight years, they told that no, it's only retardation. And the, the um, last one, when she was ten years old, she received the diagnosis um, um, eight, uh, autism. Mm. So she now has to uh, double diagnose, uh, and autism is the main diagnosis. Uh, uh, it was kind of challenging uh, because I have only one child. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, I didn't have any experience, especially reading. It's very kind of um, new for me, and, and I am 
uh, I was a little bit uh, stressed to know mm. what is good for her. Uh, and the main problem for her was like uh, finding a good school, uh, and everything was kind of challenging. Uh, now she is um, going in a school that um, is special for autism. That's children. good. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's uh, kind of um, it was long process for me and her dad to accept the whole process and um, uh, try to to just uh, understand her. Mm-hmm. Because it was uh, far from myself. Because I I I have uh, good acad- academic um, uh, education. Uh, I have my PhD, and uh, her father is also academic. But uh, she, I you know, we didn't know what happened, what is going on, and we wanted to help her to get the best education. But uh, now we are kind of giving up, and we feel that okay, it's okay, just she's happy and she does her. Uh, what uh, she is supposed to do and like this, but uh, I want to help her in the best way I, is possible. Because every parent likes to help, because of before it is late. So I uh, I was reading, listening, and reading, uh, especially listening to your radio, Hamra, and like this. I, and I feel that the kind of difference between uh, U.S. and Sweden, like uh, in this case, I I heard that. Uh, it is more objective type of diagnosis like um, brain imaging and stuff like that in uh, U.S. is more conventional than Sweden. Uh, is it right? Uh, I don't, not that uh, I know of. I mean, not often for d- diagnosing mental illnesses is not something that I, I, my experience has been that they commonly do brain scans here in the United States. I'm sure some people, I know some people do it, but it's not something common. And a lot of these things don't show up so clearly in a brain scan, like autism. Sometimes they notice certain differences in groups of people with autism. But as far as I know, there's no clear test where they say, we're going to test your brain and tell you your child has autism or does not have autism. So I'm not sure. You can, of course, look for other opinions both on what I'm even saying, but also on the diagnosis itself. But are you wondering if the diagnosis is wrong? What's your, uh, what is the, the issue? It seems like you're not accepting the diagnosis. Uh, no, I'm, I'm sure that she is a kind of any, uh, anywhere in autism spectrum. And after her diagnosing, I got also uh, uh, diagnosed ADHD. And I, so I, but I, I am more confused that it uh, probably, if she has ADD, uh, probably she will be more possible to get a kind of treatment or help by neurofeedback instead of having a kind of uh, just autism cascade. I kind of, uh, I, um, I heard that ADHD, uh, one can get more help by neurofeedback. But ADD probably is the same because it's just without hyper uh, activity. So uh, if it is ADD that I get from the beginning, is it possible that she will get better help with neurofeedback? Should we try neurofeedback for her? She, uh, well, she might get uh, help. But, you know, you're, if you're saying she has autism and mental retardation and you're accepting those things, and unfortunately a lot of people, they have, like you said, dual diagnosis or multiple diagnoses, um, like they have comorbid uh, disorders or issues they're dealing with. So even if it does help, I'm not saying you shouldn't try that, 
I'm not sure if you're accepting her level of functioning. I'm not saying we should not try to help her and make it better, but that maybe you have this idea that if you if it's ADHD and we do neurofeedback, she's going to get so much better. Um, and I don't know what your expectation is. Of course, we should try to help her in every way. That's good. But I'm trying to understand um, what your where your mindset is because something about the way you talked about her as so different from you and her father who are so educated and academically um, doing or successful and intelligent, there was something that didn't feel quite good about that, that it was somehow looking down at her or not accepting her fully as your daughter because she's so different in that way. It was just a feeling I had that what didn't feel very good. Mm. <laughs> no, not, 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 uh, not in that way. That's not accepting. Uh, because I feel that uh, intelligence was the main thing that helped me in my way, in my life. And I felt that uh, it is very uh, such a pity that she she mm -hmm. doesn't have this, this uh, ability. Just the kind of this okay. feeling of uh, I, I'm so sorry. I I wanted the best for her. Sure. I, no, no, no. no. Um, otherwise, she is she is the best one I have in my life. Oh, it's yeah. Not at all. That 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 kind of feeling I have. Okay, good. Because I want to make sure that feeling is given to her more than you give it to me. Is how she feels about how you guys feel about her. Um, and I understand the expectations do change when you have a child with different types of abilities or difficulties or disabilities. So I can see how that was an adjustment and not what you were expecting to, to have. We want to make sure we adjust those expectations and accept her, of course, trying to help her in every way we can to, to make things the best way we can. But that's so she doesn't feel like she's not doing enough in some way or isn't enough in some way. That to me is so important even in some ways more important than some of these treatments is how you guys treat her, the feeling you give her about who she is, you know? Uh, we, I just um, try to understand, try to look at her, watch her. Mm -hmm. I try to see how she works and try to give her the best possibility Good. that she will help her in the way that she likes. Yeah. But uh, sometimes I feel that if I... Uh, move to somewhere which is uh, warmer, for instance, or more sun, if she can go out more, or kind of uh, finding places that she can be more active. And so she is a little bit um, overweight now. She doesn't, she's not that much active. I try to bring her to swimming pool, or uh, she uh, started to learn uh, riding the horse. Mm -hmm. But um, it's not enough. I feel that she needs more, um, more uh, activity. It's in general in Swedish children that uh, uh, people are not uh, enough active. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, and for her, it's uh, special that she she uh, she is just sitting down. Yeah. So, uh, it, it, this is one case, and uh, kind of I want to. Um, uh, I'm uh, asking this because I probably have kind of possibility to move to US uh, to uh, you know, for her, but I'm not that it will help her uh, because then she will not be able to see her dad so that will stay here in Sweden she, because she, he doesn't have the kind of possibility for work huh. so I, I want to know if how can I help her because if, if there is more possibility for treatment or helping her in US if it is worth for that 
um, in Sweden, it is a kind of um, neurosis that is not included yet in general public uh, healthcare. So mm. I have to pay extra and I have to find the places that uh, they are, most of them are new and I don't know if they work properly. properly. And I want to, to know um, if it is worth to, to change mm. my life to, to help her more. Well, what pay yeah. amount in Sweden for neurofeedback? Is it uh, does it work for her? Well, I don't. You know, I don't know. It's hard to say how much it will help her if it's just about neurofeedback. Uh, I don't know about Sweden and how the access is and how much it costs. But it doesn't seem like a a, a lot of a reason to move to the United States. It could be helpful for her. And I don't know overall the treatment there if it's so much better. In America compared to Sweden I really don't know so it's hard for me to comment on on that now being away from her father that itself can have a negative impact I'm not sure how their relationship is what mm -hmm. she's like with him are you and him married but you would just move because of her uh, no, no I, I will move because of her we divorced okay. a few years ago because it was really difficult to manage the yeah. situation I have myself a kind of this uh, ADHD problem uh, and pain in my body like uh, I got diagnosed with fibromyalgia uh, since several years ago uh, mm -hmm. and uh, her dad has kind of Asperger he, he didn't yet get the kind of diagnosed but it's uh, kind of more possible that he has this other side of the syndrome. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, kind of uh, a family with, uh, with different uh, type of um, uh, problem or uh, uh, neurotypical difference. So mm -hmm. it's a kind of um, so it's therefore we couldn't manage the life but together. But we we are friends. He helps a lot. I help a lot. I help a lot, and she lives with me. Um, uh, she go to the dad two nights a week. So she, she can see the father whenever she wish, and uh, he is very kind and helps. It's a yeah. very good relationship okay. between us, because I didn't want to have a kind of uh, be angry, because we, we couldn't manage, and we got angry sometimes, uh, me and the father. We didn't want to uh, have her in a situation that she sees that uh, we, we are discussing, arguing. This time. Yeah. So now uh, we, are, we are living in separate apartments. But she she is in the, she has a kind of possibility to be whenever um, whenever she wants to meet her father. Okay, I mean that's good. That sounds important. If she has a good relationship with him, her, uh, him um, to allow for that. I don't know if moving all the way to the United States just for neurofeedback itself, it, and also you can get it there. You might have to just pay. It seems like a lot to go through for that, but I don't, you know, that's something you probably could research that and know more about it than I would of how much easier it is and how beneficial it might be for her. If anything, I would say try it there, and if it's so beneficial and you can't afford it, then maybe it could make sense. But to me, it seems like a lot to go through and to move countries and continents and move away from her father because of neurofeedback, which is available there but might be harder to access. It seems like a lot to do. I, I understand, and I'm glad you want to do everything you can to help her, but my initial reaction to that is that it's not worth all of that to move all the way here. Now, if the overall treatment for autism in Sweden is not good and she's not getting the resources she needs in a lot of ways, maybe there that then there's more to it than just the neurofeedback that I don't know about. But I don't know really about how they are giving you guys treatment there and how much is either missing or if really it's good enough? 
Lots of things are covered here, too, depends on also in schools. Sometimes they have resources for the kids, and if they have special needs, they provide that for them. So I don't know exactly how much and the differences here versus there in finances. I, I wish I had more information. Like I said, for me, moving um, just for maybe neurofeedback and some smaller things might not be worth it in, in my estimation, but that's something for you to decide. And, you know, having a child that has special needs you know every child has their own special needs of course but some types of more unique special needs like you're you know you're dealing with with your child is is challenging and it can take a big toll on a marriage as it seems like it did for you and your now ex-husband a lot of times that unfortunately does happen and i'm glad you guys decided to not fight in front of her about her especially because uh, she can feel that and she'll take that in and it'll make her feel worse and really it's not like she's trying to to create problems or trying to be difficult she's just being herself and we want to make sure she feels like we love her for being herself and how she is and remember that she can't just be different and sometimes parents with children who are dealing with some type of uh, emotional or mental disability because we can't see it there can be even a stronger desire for them to just be different or want that from them and we could understand that desire to want it just even for her but also for yourself but we know that it's not something really in her control of course we're going to help her to become the best for herself um, but a lot of what for other people or kids might be easy for her won't be you know and that's unfortunate but it's just the truth uh, yeah but uh, 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 then you talk about only for neurofeedback coming to us it's not i feel that uh, in general all the uh, treatment is uh, the treatment is uh, better than sweden and the climate the weather probably she will be more active and the other thing is that my own uh, job possibility is more okay. in us than in, if it is in sweden so probably it will get better possibility for me Okay, so that could, I mean, there could be reasons, yeah, maybe there's, yeah, maybe I understood it wrong, and it doesn't seem like it's just that simple about just the neurofeedback. It could be better for her, but I mean, you know, people, uh, individuals with autism tend to not do well with change, so be ready for that too, that changing her complete living condition and country might be challenging for her too, challenging for anyone, but with someone with autism, usually they like things being the same and consistency and so that change might be very challenging so be ready for that also yeah i i understand yeah. it will be a new situation for me as well so yeah of course everything will be new for myself and right. i i don't know how much i will be able to get used to that um, yeah. yeah it's uh it's you're right yeah. it's new for her and it will be discussed um yeah thank you but uh, i have just one more question i don't know if you have time now yeah, yeah sure go ahead yeah uh, 
myself, I have this kind of uh, received this diagnosis of ADHD, the, yeah, newly. Uh -huh. And um, I had a problem in my um, my body, pain in the whole body, and got uh, diagnosed with uh, fibromyalgia in the beginning of my mm. program. It was really hard. But uh, because it's Sweden, we could kind of ha manage um, to work outside with my PhD and visit my PhD and then um, work a little bit. Um, but I have this kind of, I got depression also mm. because of pain and uh, difficulties and my daughter had her own problems, so the life was not easy. Uh, and if, uh, I had the kind of antidepressive for several uh, times in different uh, uh, situation and now I heard about ketamine um, uh, treatment uh, from Radio Hamra mm -hmm. and I was thinking about it that uh, uh, if um, it is kind of uh, help that I can receive because I, I was in antidepressive for a different type of antidepressive and I still have a kind of uh, upcoming uh, depression. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting and maybe you're, you're in a way saying this but ketamine was originally when they started using it in treatment was more for pain. And then they realized that those people that were getting treated for pain were actually also getting their depression was getting better, too. And then it started to become a treatment for depression. So um, it, it could be that it would be helpful for you because of that, that you have had depression, but you also ha are suffering from the pain through fibro myalgia that it, it might be helpful for you so usually we recommend people do other treatments first for their depression which it seems like you've tried so ketamine might be helpful for you i'm always very cautious because no drug or no treatment is going to help everyone but um it, it definitely can be good for someone like you who is dealing with both pain issues and depression i don't know in sweden my guess is there are people that there are ketamine centers there because they are opening around the world or already exist in a lot of places. So it could be something worth looking uh, looking into for yourself. Yeah, but is it possible to do this uh, treatment during a couple of weeks staying in U.S.? It is, yeah. I mean, you know, sometimes people, they, they usually at the beginning, you'll get a few infusions in a short amount of time. And then after that, you might need some, like you call them kind of boosters here and there, like maintenance. Some people do, some people don't ever need those again. So yeah, you can do it in a few weeks time. Um, that is possible. But uh, sometimes you'll want to be able to have access to the treatment more than that. But it, it, that is definitely a possibility, sure. Yeah, so I I I I was trying to contact this telephone number that you told about um, in treatment, but I couldn't yet uh, connected to them. I oh. hope that I, somebody can help me to, yeah. to uh, plan my treatment. Sure. A couple of weeks in, I will come there and get this treatment. Okay. Well, that's definitely. Uh, in Sweden, they they have a kind of uh, still it's the kind of. Um, uh, in uh, research time, they yeah. are really, really secure. They take their time to decide about using this new treatment. Mm. It's not going fast. Well, probably if you, yeah, most likely, you know, even here in the United States, it's covered, not covered by the insurance yet because of that also. So you might have it in Sweden, but you would have to pay out of pocket is the possibility. But, um, you know, if it is possible to do what you were saying in the United States, 
as well or you could find somewhere there but you know whatever it is i hope you do find that help i want to go to the commercial break because we are over uh, time with that in this segment but i appreciate you calling i mean you could do it here as i mentioned or find that in the in your hopefully closer to you and the best of luck with your daughter as well thank you so much thank, thank you. you nice talking to you thank you thank you bye-bye all right bye bye-bye going into our last commercial break you're listening to in session with dr fatty delacqui we'll be right back Welcome back. You know, in the last uh, segment, I was talking with the caller, and I appreciate her call about her daughter and try to find out what's the best way to take care of her, what would be the best way to take care of her. And um, she definitely seemed to be trying everything or wanting to do whatever she could, then that is wonderful. And so in the last segment, I did want to talk about taking care of kids. And as I, in a way, mentioned to her, every one has special needs and that we all are unique but of course some children might need some resources that are not as typical or not all kids need and of course we want to make sure we get them what they need to have what they deserve to have and uh, thankfully there is more of an awareness of this that we should take care of the kids really what we're supposed to do is Make sure every kid, every person also, but every child gets what's what they need. And so different kids need different things, um, but it, just because they need more or need something different doesn't mean we shouldn't give it to them. And sometimes we'll say, well, if you give it to one kid, every kid should have it. But no, we give what the child needs. It doesn't mean the same. It means the needs are met. So if one child can't see very well and needs glasses, we don't say, well, either every child gets glasses or no child should get glasses we give we want to make sure every child can see and so if one child needs glasses to see clearly that's what they should get or contacts if that's what they want to use so we want to make those needs met so that's very important to me as we get those needs met but as i mentioned with her and i think i maybe misunderstood some of what she said before but in general for parents whatever your child is like or is different from what you thought or expected or wanted or and being aware of those wants you want to make sure your child feels okay and loved for who or he or she is and even when we're talking about gratitude and uh, thanksgiving being grateful for who your child is and showing appreciation for who they actually are and not something you want them to be or you have an expectation for them to be and oftentimes parents are not aware of these expectations they have because they might not even be fully conscious of them but usually we have ways that we look at our kids and have some hopes maybe from what we ourselves experience or a very big way that this happens is parents look to their child in a way to represent them or they feel like well if my child is smart and getting good grades that makes me look good but if they get bad grades it makes me look bad and so we have to be aware of this too your child is not in this world to make you either look good or bad you brought that child into the world they didn't have a choice and your job is to love that child and make them uh, feel good and to feel good about themselves and who they are they're not here to make you feel good about who you are or to make you come off a certain way and so we have to be aware of that because it can interfere with how we make our kids feel they get in trouble at school and rather than thinking about why did my child misbehave? What happened? What is my child feeling about what the, they're going through? Or maybe if they're misbehaving, what's going on for them? 
emotionally that might have led to this, or maybe it's not that big of a deal, but still trying to understand it. A lot of times parents are thinking about their embarrassment of having to go to the school and talk to the teacher or the principal, and they'll even tell the kids this. Do you know how embarrassed I was having to go and deal with this situation and talk about what you did? And so look at the message you're sending your kid. You're an embarrassment. You're ashamed. What you feel in the situation doesn't matter. What I feel matters. You made me look bad. I have to deal with this. Where maybe your kid is crying out for help. Maybe they are acting a certain way because of what they are dealing with. But they become less important as to how we look in front of other people. And I know this is easier said than done. A smaller example is when your baby is crying and you're in public, um, maybe the most common example people use in these situations is on a plane. And of course, you might feel bad or people are giving you looks or making comments and you don't feel so good. But I would hope that we could come back and focus that your uh, priority should be your child. Are they okay? Is the baby okay? Of course, you don't want to cause such a big disturbance and you're aware of that, but you want to make sure your child is okay. So we have to be very aware of remembering that we in a way, are serving our children when you're a parent. Now, of course, you are the authority and you have some power that you need to make sure you employ in a way to help your child in loving them more. But even that is used in service of your child to make sure they feel good, to make sure they feel loved, to make sure they're growing in the best way they can, to make sure they're protected. You might need to sometimes use your power to protect them or use that authority that you have. But they're not here in any way to make you feel good about yourself, to make you look good in front of other people, and we shouldn't give any of that expectation onto them. And so if your child gets good grades, to me it doesn't necessarily mean you're a good parent, and if your parent gets bad grades, it doesn't mean your child that you are a bad parent to your child. It's much more complicated than that, and there's much more going on. Sometimes even a child is getting good grades because their parents are putting too much pressure on their kid. So they might be getting A's, but they don't feel very good or they're stressed out or they're close to a breakdown. But the parents are so focused on just the grade and how it's going to make them look and make them feel that that's all that they're focusing on. And so the child might be getting A's, but emotionally be getting F's. And that to me is a bad trade-off. So don't look to your kids to make you feel good or look good. And really don't think that it makes you look very good. If I find out someone is successful, I don't just look to the parents. I know parents, of course, have a big impact, and that's why I want parents to be aware of what they're doing, but much less in the sense of just what they accomplish, but about how they feel about themselves. Be more focused on making them feel good about who they are than making sure they accomplish a certain thing. Encourage them to work hard because it's good, not work hard because it's going to make us look good. That's a very different message that might end with a similar result in some tangible way as far as a grade, but it'll be very different how the child feels about themselves and how they'll work going forward and how they'll even uh, view what they're doing. Am I doing the right things or am I looking good? It's very different mindset and different motivation, but it's important for us to send that forward to them. So we have to look at our children for who they are, accept them for who they are, and also make sure we see them in the way they want to be seen, meaning that we don't put some expectations on them that are unreasonable, put expectations on them that we want. I want my child to be a star athlete because I think that'll look good, or I want my child to be a star um, a student because it'll make me look good. Those things are not what should be our focus. Our focus should be, I want my child 
to feel good about who they are. And once they feel good about who they are and are emotionally in a good place, they actually will be able to accomplish even more. They'll be able to be successful and do good things, but with the right intentions and even it'll be able to last more. I see so many students, especially high school students, who are just so stressed out and they feel the pressure from their parents, both explicitly and implicitly, and a pressure to meet these standards that we now have for high school kids if they want to go to a good university here in the United States. That's really just crazy and turns them into robots and makes them just focus on looking like a good candidate rather than actually being a good person and doing good things. And so we want to make sure we don't contribute to that by putting an expectation on our kids to be something we want them to be, to be something for us. Yes, encourage them to do good things, to value good things, but for their own benefit, not to do good things so to look good to other people or to accomplish something to look good to others. So be grateful for your kids too this Thanksgiving. Appreciate them for who they are and make sure they get that feeling and feel that way about themselves too. All right, that brings us to the end of today's show. The book of the week again is The Fear of Doing Nothing, Notes of a Young Therapist by Valerie Hazanoff. Thank you to the callers and to the listeners and to Ghazali here in the studio. And a happy Thanksgiving to everyone celebrating here in the United States. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fahir Dawakwi. Have a wonderful day. 